So if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, today is International Women's Day, which is eight days into Women's History Month. Can you tell I like numbers? Woot woot, right? <laughs> so it's no surprise at all that we are here today with Sybil Amudi, the founder of the Great Girlfriends platform, to talk about friendships, community, and so much more, especially as it relates to women. So this conversation was also a great reminder of two things. One, guess what? We all have women in our lives 365 days out of the year and not just the 31 days in March. And two, it's important to include all women when we talk about women, because sometimes, and you might not have caught this from the title of our show, maybe, maybe you did. That definition of women seems to only include white women. So let's jump in. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? My name is Sybil Amuti. I'm the founder and host of the Great Girlfriends podcast. I'm so happy because first of all, I get to do my show with a great girlfriend and to be able to talk to someone who values the relationships between women is super exciting for me. Could you tell people sort of what the Great Girlfriends platform, because you're not just a podcast, you have a couple of other big things that you do with that. For sure. So in 2015, I partnered with a great girlfriend to start what we thought was going to be a mentorship space for our mentees to listen to some of the things that they ask us at a high frequency on a regular basis in a separate space. And we thought we were going to save time and build what would be like a podcast. And at the time, you know, people were asking, what is a podcast? And I was an avid podcast listener and she was as well. So we thought, well, this will be a simple solution that will support our mentees and you know, we'll kind of sit it to the side as a, a passion thing that we do just to kind of devote to mentorship because I had two toddlers and I was living between San Diego and New York. And she at the time was pregnant, newly married, lots of life was happening. We start this podcast and what we realized was that there were not enough voices in the podcast space at the time that were speaking to women in a way that was disarming, that was safe and empowering at the same time. We also realized that there were people who were thirsty for a community where the power of friendship could be celebrated and recognized, you know, and kind of bring in volume and illuminate it a lot more. And so what started as a baby, you know, our baby project became a brand, a community that is designed to curate safe space where women can celebrate and honor the power of friendship. And the power of that friendship starts with yourself. How much can I love me? Can I be friends with me? <laughs> Can I celebrate me? And then how much of that can I offer out to other people and build the value of building these relationships? And so we found that message to be wildly popular. We found that, you know, lots of brands and curated partners wanted to be a part of the experience. And, you know, then the conference began in 2016 and we do virtual and regional events around the nation. And, you know, then we also start to build out programming, virtual programming during the pandemic to help support women in the coaching space and continue to build out products that help to nurture in the self-care and the wellness space. And so essentially what, you know, we thought was going to be our nucleus of a New York community became more of a digital space where women could just connect and collaborate over this message and also hear from other people who are allies in the friendship space. Because we do know that women who have friendships at the center of their life, first with themselves and then with others, they live longer 
they're healthier, they make more money, <laughs> they're more satisfied with their quality of life. You know, they hit higher and longer in all the wellness categories. And women who are isolated, you know, shorter lifespan, you know, more illness, right? Mental health issues, you know, crave for more in their quality of life. So the data shows that the PowerPoint of all of our lives, the quality of our life is centered around the, that connectivity, which is friendship. So my personal mission is to supercharge that message and make sure that our children are also able to eat off of that message and spread it to the next gen and next gen and next gen. And that's what I do. <laughs> and I say it all the time that relationships are, the, you know, the science is showing that relationships are the best predictor of our long-term health and happiness. Right. And, you know, just to make sure people know this, I love that Essence Magazine called your conference one of the 10 conferences that Black women need to attend. Like you have really supercharged and have gotten a great platform going and are serving an incredible space. I hope more people listen to this because I think so many times, you know, it's easy for people to fall into that like really annoying stereotype of like, oh no, women are so catty. Women are this with each other. And I think it's completely the opposite. You can create and curate incredible spaces because there is so much benefit to being in it together. Like you just shared. For sure. And I also want to highlight this super important and I'm incredibly proud of that. So today's show mentioned our podcast is one of the top podcasts to listen to in 2022. And that was a real win moment, a celebratory moment. And I think one of the things that makes it so important is My job is to put on display the power of connection, the power of what happens when women come together with pure intentions and curate space without, you know, any prejudice or, you know, any ulterior motives. There's so much collaboration that happens and so much impact and you two see it. And so I think it's our job to continue to mobilize that at every level through across industries, find the intersections and continue to just put microphone and volume to it. You know, I love all of this, like Sybil, you are our people because this is something that is so powerful. And by the way, my mom is after she listens to this episode, cause she listens to a lot of our episodes. She's going to report back on that today show thing. Cause that is huge. I love, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, and as I'm listening to you talk, I'm hearing this in 2022. And I feel like I would have heard this differently, a little bit differently in 2018 or 2019, because, you know, we talk a lot on our show about the power of community, the importance of relationships and mattering, just like we've been talking about right here. But we're two years right into this pandemic. And a lot of us have really seen our circles shrink over those last two years or change. (laughs) Sarah's just like straight hand shot up. Me too. I think it's very hard to not have those circles change or shrink in some ways. So what's your take on how at this stage in the pandemic, you know, in 2022, people can go about either rebuilding their friendships or really cultivating that community that they're so many of us are so desperately looking for. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, you know, I think the painstaking part of the pandemic for all of us was the isolation. When you take what is coming and you don't even realize how communal you are with coworkers, with the man at the bodega, if you're in New York, with the neighbor that you see every day who's exiting a driveway at the stop sign. These people don't matter to you until you don't see them. And then you start to go, wait, I actually do miss their contribution to what makes my life circular and what gives it value. Right. So I think we started to see. You know, even if it's the lady at the checkout at your grocery store, 
all these people that are micro facets of our community down to your great girlfriend who you meet for brunch every week, or you go to church with, or you even just talk to at a regular pace, you know, at high frequency, we start to see that these people mattered so much more than we realized. And maybe we took for granted the impact that connection really makes on how we show up and the oxygen that we give one another. And Zoom can only give you a fraction of that. You know, we can see each other and we can gauge eye contact, but literally taking in the same breath, it's there's so much power in doing that. And I feel that a lot of that was resurrected, you know, once, you know, the quarantine rules were, I will say, lessened and people start to feel safe again. But even in doing that, we started to realize that our needs became different. You know, in the isolation and in the quarantine, uh, there was a lot of introspection. Our lives evolved. Our needs changed. You know, we've all become something more or less or different. And our relationships don't always sit in the same space. And I think it's okay for us to say, my needs have changed. My wants have changed. My expectations have changed. As a result, I might not share the same proximity that I once did with, you know, one of my friends, because now I realize her needs have changed and we don't sit in the same space. Maybe she doesn't go to Pilates anymore. She's found that Peloton is her way and I'm still a Pilates girl. So we won't meet there. Where are our points of intersection and how can we enjoy those? And I think a lot of letdown happens when we want to go back to where we were and there is no more. If only 2019, right? <laughs> there is, you know, life in 2019, our children have changed stages. I now have a teenager. Jeez, my life is different. You know, I moved. A lot of people are have moved, new careers. And, you know, the letdown happens when you have the expectations of 2019 in 2022. And there's a gap of time and opportunity that we haven't stepped into. So I think it's important for us if you want to reframe relationships to check in and say, where are you now? You know, where are you post-pandemic? How do you feel about, you know, working out now? Are you still as active in your, in the club where we met? Or are you still passionate about books? Or what are you most passionate about? You know, find those points of intersection and be okay. If you're not able to meet at those points of intersection, be okay with the space that you need to allow. Because I think once you bend those boundaries to accommodate old relationships, you find yourself constantly pacifying old emotions and never really honoring the new space. You know, and that's what I've learned. <laughs> it's thinking it's important for other people too. That is such great perspective. I feel like it was the best explanation I think I've heard so far of that transition that we have all made. And your formula of starting with looking inwards still applies. And it's just being honest with yourself in how you have changed so that you can accept it. Yeah. And realize we are in 2022 now and we can have an opportunity to sort of rebuild where we are now, not sort of compare ourselves to where we were before and beat ourselves up. Things have changed. So thank you. One of the things that I was thinking about, I live in Colorado and it's a fairly white state, but Mm -hmm. there are so many individuals of color that I also come into contact with of of all different shades. I know that there's also a lot of white people like, but I don't know how to, if we're talking to our audience, how to build those cross-racial friendships and, and incorporate that part of it into my life with integrity. And I think it is an important thing to discuss this idea of cross-racial friendships. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to hear from your perspective, what are some of the things that white women need to think about when they are in or when they're developing potentially new relationships in 2022? Absolutely. I do think it becomes a complex space, especially, you know, 
in the climate that we sit in now where, you know, there's still a lot of tiptoeing and people don't want to be inappropriate in the things they say or questions they ask or and language vernacular is so important. So people are hypersensitive to saying the right thing at the right time and not wanting to be offensive. But I think we can't forget that we're all human having a human experience. And, you know, before and after anything, I'm a woman, I'm a human, you're a woman, you're a human being, you know, Miss Astra's woman, a human being, and we're sharing that singular experience together, right? Of wanting the same things, desiring the same things for our life, our quality of life, wanting the same hopes and opportunities for our children, wanting to experience love and passion, romance, you know, with the significant other, wanting to travel and be curious about the world and feel safe doing so, right? Then we find out, well, how is that different as you move into being a Black woman, as you move into being a biracial Asian woman, as you move into being, you know, Hispanic or whatever your subset is? And I think it's okay to say, how is your human experience different as a Black woman? How is navigating mother, motherhood as a Black woman? How is that different for you with the son or how is it different with the woman? This is what I found as a woman in my career you know, as a white woman, as a biracial woman, this is what I, my experience has been. What has been your experience? Because we have to remember we're all human first and wanting to share connection over experience is something every human wants to do. Being included in that conversation is a very human thing. We all want to be heard, seen, and appreciated for our individual experiences brought to a collective table. So I think it's our responsibility as humans to see and understand that we're all human first, but then there's that subset of, okay, well, how has this been different for you? Or has it been different for you as an Asian woman? Has it been different for you as a black mom? You know, I've seen different things that, you know, are lacking in my company as a white woman, or I see that this is missing. Have you found that this is the same in your community? Or do you feel isolated as a result of not being seen? Or how has this absence affected you? putting a keen eye to it and understanding that we're responsible for the exclusion and the inclusion, right? Because if I see that something's missing from a conversation, I have the power to introduce it. I have the power to say in any conversation, I wonder how this could be different for white women. I wonder how Asian women feel. And as a community builder, you know, which we are the three of us, we all viewed as community builders. And I feel like every person listening is probably a community builder in some way, because we all have the power to influence a sphere of people and build community and collaborate and build voice around something. Well, we can be inclusive. We can be more inclusive around things that we see or observe. And we can also be exclusive around some things as well. And I think it's important for us to, to see where we've missed it. And I feel like, you know, the murder of George Floyd for sure exposed for some people where there has been so much exclusion in conversation, like, gosh, we have not talked about this. We didn't know this. We've never seen this. Black people have said this, but we've never even heard it because in our conversations, there's been exclusivity. We only talk about our experience. Well, now we feel more responsibility to introduce the inclusion of other experiences that all make it a part of our American experience, right? So I think there's that piece that we can offer to our communities, to our associations, to our children, all of those things that help to build a better legacy towards inclusivity or inclusion in America, for sure. I love that idea. I mean, I, first of all, I love how you shared that it seems like it comes from a place of sincerity, right? It's where are you in your circles? What are you already doing? And then adding that layer of curiosity. And the one other thing that you mentioned that jumped out at me was that sense of responsibility, 
to bring in other narratives. And that's the one piece that I find, I hope more people feel that sense of responsibility. I know I do in that questioning. And I do sometimes wonder like, what does it take for people to feel that in a genuinely deep way? And I think it sort of relates to what I wanted to ask you next, which is about this idea of strategizing and brand strategy, because that's the other hat that you used to or wear, right? And you know, when we talk about our spheres of influence, I think some people can easily hear it in a company say, right? Like, of course, a company should be responsible for representing many different experiences because their products can be sold to a lot of people. It's that same responsibility I want people to feel in their everyday spheres as well. What I'm feeling is that in this country, increasingly, a lot of people don't feel responsibility for each other. We're so focused on individualism and what's in it for me and my freedoms. And so I'm having a harder time hoping that more people will feel responsible. And I wondered if we could talk about that just for a minute. Yeah, I'll say, you know, it's so important. I think in any society, in any room, any population, it's very easy for the majority to not see the invisibility of the minority. It's very easy for people to overlook or misunderstand the invisibility of a population that they don't take the time (laughs) to honor and see. Likewise, when you have such a long history, and this is just humans, right? Have you ever had a history with a person that has been so long that you almost feel like it's so hard to ever get over that hump and you never know if you're ever going to forgive and move forward and you can't figure out how. So you just try to push it away. You know, for Black people in America, that's what it feels like. It feels as though, you know, white people feel that that history has been so long and so deep. And instead of taking ownership and acknowledging the wrongs and making, you know, really progressive steps, large leaps towards making things better for Black people in America, they'd rather just overlook it and hide it and tuck it under a rug. And the hard part about when that happens or as it continues to happen is Black people's invisibility, you know, for white people feels as though it's disruptive. It feels that every time we say something or do something, we're disrupting a perfect picture, a perfect portrayal of this America that we don't know. It's foreign to us. So quite honestly, we're tired, you know, of having to be the ones to bring voice to all of this. And we're tired of having to put that labor on the backs of our children to be visible. And we're tired of knocking down walls and pulling up chairs to tables and say, and having one person be hired for diversity and inclusion. And that being the thing, you know, we're tired of having to have these conversations, but you know, until we're all free, there's still more work to do. And the advocacy comes is more mobilized and it's more empowered when more minorities say, yeah, we recognize this. We see this and we work collaboratively to bring voice for all minorities. Right. And to bring exposure to these things at a higher level, bringing voice transforms everything, unveiling, exposing, showing statistically where companies are lacking, you know, because these companies don't build themselves. They're built by humans. No said brand can make a decision without humans making those choices. So a lot of times people will point to a brand. I'm like, who are the humans that have powered these choices that will make that brand's decisions? A brand can't make those decisions without the human force behind it. And a lot of times people will feel shielded when they say, oh, you know, brand X needs to do more in diversity. Well, that entire board sits quietly and goes, yeah, they're right. Yeah, but you all are the ones 
who make up the decisions. You are the stakeholders. You are the influencers at the table. So when you're saying Brand X needs to make decision, you're saying name them by board member, name them by C-suite, name them from the top down, the people who need to open the conversations and bridge the gaps, right? That's just what I think about that. I think that's so interesting too, because I think we have this fundamental disconnect sometimes in America because we want to depersonalize companies, right? In your, you know, in that example, right? But at the same time, we don't want to talk about systemic forces that are at work that have been keeping us in the same place, not moving forward for years. So it's this weird dichotomy because Sarah knows I was reading a books to my boys' classes virtually for Black History Month. And we read a kid's book about systemic racism mm-hmm. in both classes. And these seven-year-olds and nine-year-olds got it. They got systemic racism. They understood it, right? Which gives me hope when I am looking at the adults who are like, well, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to make people uncomfortable. We can't talk about that, right? Like, or that's going to make some people uncomfortable when we really, you know, hold up a lens to what is our history? What is our shared history? And who has the ability to make these changes, right? Which is really all of us. And I think, you know, when Sarah and I give sometimes our talks or talk about our book and people are like, oh, you're so brave for saying that. It. I feel this visceral sense of a bunch of things, but it's not bravery. It's not that. I think it's responsibility, right? And it's past responsibility, right? It's just being a human. We have this humanity within us. So I love what you said about that because it really is looking at us as humans, right? All of us are controlling those decisions that we make. And when we absolve some humans from making those decisions or say like it's someone else's problem, right? Or it's brand X, you know, that's just so happens, you know, or you have a whole security council meeting and all those tech guys who are sitting in the room are all white, older men. You're like, well, it's so weird. We just, you know, these companies can't, we just, there's no pipeline. And so I think you just sort of push off the responsibility, yet we can't accept the history that got us there in the first place. So I think it's just such a fascinating thing about our country. Right. And fascinating in a not good way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, you think about our children, you know, our, my kids were born into a black president. I had never seen it. <laughs> so their norms have changed, right? So their expectations of possibility have they're completely disrupted. I never thought it would ever happen in my lifetime. I just I didn't, I didn't even dream it possible because I had never seen it. And all, you know, they were born into the possibility of a minority being a president of the United States of America. They were born into so many possibilities that we've never seen. So the opportunity for them to create new, fresh, innovative, disruptive culture is so rich and ripe. And it's exciting for me because. I feel they're more decent and human to one another than we have been or were taught to be. It's true. I say it, you know, I have the teenager as well. And to see the conversations that they have at their age about identity, about race, about history, about the true history of what has happened in our country, they know so much more and are absorbing this information like sponges and understand inherently the respect that each person deserves for being who they are. And so I'm glad I had an infusion of hope because every once in a while I feel like beaten, but you know, it feels like there is hope, especially with this children's generation. And if we want to be the kind of parents who are able to engage with children who see the world totally differently than we did, 
because of their lived experience, then we want to be able to motivate ourselves to feel that same level of openness, responsibility, and engagement with each other as people too. Along the lines of those trends, so I do want to come back to this idea of brand development because I do want to point out that you're a strategist. We've heard minorities are tired of having to consistently be the people to do this, but we've also been hearing from white people that they're tired, insert eye roll here, Gigantic eye roll. Right. <laughs> Paying attention to like the deep work. I'm like, tell me more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm listening. They're tired of talking about race. They're tired of talking about diversity and equity and inclusion. And we're just like, okay, I understand the pandemic was difficult, but it was not. There are many more people who, for whom it was more difficult than it was for you. And so, for example, if we take this on a corporate level, right? Like recently, the NFL with its very clear displays of racism, have selected some solid representation in West Coast hip hop for the halftime show. And people are like, well, okay, so what are they trying to say here? What was their choice supposed to represent aside from just chasing money for the white owner's benefit? And so when you like, I think about companies like this or organizations that you're like, mm, you still really haven't addressed the root cause of the problems in your industry or the your representation or sorry, your marketing tactics and your branding and your messaging around it. Like since 2020, when it comes to racial representation and commitment to DEI work as part of a company's sort of brand, what sort of trends have you seen? Traditionally, my observation and, and my feelings and thoughts about America is that it's been easy for Black people to be named as entertainers, you know, and to curate entertainment, to be at the front side dancing and performing for white people and for the pleasure of white people. And that's just been a space where Black people have been traditionally welcomed to be on the forefront, but still belaboring on the back end for equity. The true equity is not in the halftime show as much as it is in the owner suite, right? So I love the idea of seeing black owners. I love the idea of seeing more black coaches. I'd love to see more black stakeholders at a higher level, though I do understand it is important for representation to sit at the forefront for us to be seen and recognized and respected for our talents. Because for many, many Super Bowls, years and years over, you know, black people were just not visible and felt muted. And, and you know, this is finally a Super Bowl where I feel you could not overlook or misunderstand the contributions that hip hop or rap have ever made to the culture, to the sound, to the feel, to the front of the field, to the back of the field. You know, in every player's ears before the game, to the host, to, you know, coaches on their way in, to, you know, just the vibe and the movement, the thrill of it all. But I do have to recognize that what I've experienced or seen in the trend is that there has been more visibility on the front side. There's been more faces on the front side, as far as talent is concerned. You see more of us in advertising, you see more commercials, you're seeing a lot more natural hair, you're seeing more black families and even biracial families in your advertisements. The powerful, most powerful stakeholdership is actually in the office at the CEO table, at the board table, right? At the equity table. So I'm seeing a lot more of an embrace from the talent side Dollar to dollar, I have to question whether or not that is even putting a dent in the power, the equity that's sitting <laughs> on the back end. Because the truth of the matter is we've never had an issue with Black people converting buying power in America. That's never been a question. We will sell products and we'll sell them to ourselves. And the numbers show that we spend the most 
And there's never been an issue with what we can do in terms of selling experience. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about ownership, a larger piece of the pie, not the pepperoni. We <laughs> slices, <laughs> right? So that's just my perspective on it. What I see is handouts, you know, and I'm hoping that as there are more people placed in powerful points of representation as DNI representatives on the boards, in the C-suite, that we start to see more equitable distribution of power and financial capabilities that we can then leverage for higher pay. We can leverage for more community impact. We can leverage for more opportunities for children of color. We can bridge that gap in pay, that part, those things. <laughs> so, you know, equity is more what I think we are still working toward. And I think it's very easy to put us on the front of an ad. And I think that's special. But I also think the slice of the pie makes more impact than the pepperoni on the top of the pie. A, I love that analogy because I think it's easy to understand. And I think that that is such an important point because I think people see things like the halftime show, right? And they're like, oh, look, like forget Brian Flores, like forget, you know, the Rooney rule, yes. forget all of that, forget the white ownership. Like we've got some black halftime performers. And so we can check that box. And we can move on. Yeah. So, you know, I think what you said is really powerful about that. It's not, yes, that's great, but it can't just be that. It has to be that and the C-suite representation and, you know, your diverse hiring committee and how do you retain talent and diverse talent and how do you pay diverse talent, right? Like how do you, equity is like a through line that is not just, you know, a single marker. So I want to ask then, what do you look for, right, in a brand or, you know, when it comes to having that integrity, having that equity, you know, is it the C-suite? Is it the hiring? Is it their hiring standards? And, you know, where are they looking to hire people from and how do they market? I mean, there's so many different components. So what is it that you look for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of it. Check. <laughs> All of it, right? I mean, because I think it's like when you're feeding your kids, you know, your plate has to have balance. So you have to have a healthy balance of representation in all sectors of an organization, right? And you have to be willing to, you know, brands that are transparent brands are brands that want to be seen and valued for the work they're doing in their infrastructure. So you want to look for brand transparency. You want to look for brands that power diverse voices to represent the thought leadership, not just the products, but the thought leadership behind the innovation, right? That represent, you know, it's quite powerful to see a woman represent a man's voice and a man understand the power of her voice over his. You kind of want to look for places where, you know, men are willing to take a back seat to a woman who has a stronger voice, right? A woman who is able to accurately represent the power of the brand. You want to look for brands that create products that are healthier because they've done the research to understand how these products affect people and their health and wellness or their well-being. And they're willing to make adaptations to help support and nurture their consumers I also like to look for brands that do not view consumers as consumers, but more as their community. People that, you know, brands that really understand the power of community and have created culture around that, that are not afraid of their consumer voice, right? Because a lot of brands will hear from their consumers, their community, and they tuck and run because, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> they're afraid of the feedback. 
what about the brands that are willing to engage on Twitter, that are willing to do that, you know, have dialogue and hear the feedback and make the changes and ask for the voices to come to the table and introduce, you know, transparency and vulnerability behind their numbers. And also, you know, I pay attention to Glassdoor reviews. I'd like to hear what the lady from, you know, the janitorial team had to say about her stay or her career at a company. It matters just as much as what, you know, a C-suite exec might have to say. Everyone is human in that experience. So, you know, I always look for those bridges between those conversations and look for brands that are willing to open up. And a lot of people have found, you know, the great thing about this culture is a lot of people found that you could DM a brand and they're like, sure, we'll have a conversation with you about X, Y, and Z. And they'll ask questions. Well, what do you propose as change components to, you know, this stage of our operations or how can we build? Because they don't know what they don't know, right? And then you have brands who are uninterested because they know that it affects their bottom line if there's exposure. So I feel it's important to look at, you know, pay attention to how brands have taken this season in our culture and have made new adaptations, you know, to make the adjustments that are essential. A lot of brands have said we messed up big time, right? Some of them closed their doors because they felt so guilty. Others opened up their doors and said, hey, we need more voices. We need more understanding. A lot of people tucked and ran because they realized that they weren't even willing to do the work that it takes to create the change. Okay, so now we as community know that those are not brands that are, are looking out for you know, the well-being of us and our children and our legacies. So we get to choose as community where we spend, right? How we support, how we nurture, what we teach our kids because our kids will start to use the same detergent we use <laughs> from the same companies that we support, right? We did it. And then we learn more and we're like, actually, mom, I don't want to use the one that you taught me to use (laughs) because I've learned about that company and I have new wellness practices. And maybe I want to support a smaller brand because I want to see, you know, Jessica Alba win because Honest is doing good work. And I really like the intention behind the company. Right. So, you know, I feel like those are ways that we pay attention. You know, you have me really curious about what your top like favorite brands and least favorite brands are now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I do have a list. I do. And it continues to evolve. And I'm okay with adjusting things as I learn, because, you know, even as I start to pay attention to product ingredients and what's supporting my family and, you know, a lot of black owned brands that are doing also doing great work to help reinvest into our community and nurture with, you know, nonprofits and foundations. Then I start to buy more. It's ever evolving. And I'm okay with telling the kids, we don't drink that anymore. Nope. We're not eating that. No, (laughs) we're switching. My kids have asked about going out to certain fast food chains. I'm like, "Mm -mm, these, you know, I mean, they, for many reasons, but different sorts of things, right? I'm like, that'd be kind of a fun exercise to come up with our own list, at least just a start because I have the unofficial ones, but I've never actually written them out. Yeah. And so that might be interesting to do. Yeah. It can be fun for kids too, because they really have the power to choose based off of whatever their ethical choices are, mm-hmm. you know? And so it gives kind of gives them a handle on how they participate in your household and, you know, what they see as a valuable brand. So I think it could be helpful to that, you know, facet of parenting. Sometimes it is a little more pricey, but I feel that that is going to be the cost we pay as we continue to pave the ground a bit more. I agree. Yeah. If a white woman could do one thing to start on this journey, what would you hope that they would think about doing towards being more anti-racist or building a more equitable community? That's a powerful question. Well, I would always recommend someone start with themselves and say, where have I missed the mark? You know, what have I missed 
as a result of my limited lens or, you know, maybe even my lack of curiosity, right? What have I missed? And I say that because, you know, we live in this world where we see things, even if it's a glimpse of limited exposure, maybe you've driven through a neighborhood and things were different from yours, or maybe you saw something on TV or you've heard a narrative. Why didn't, you know, and we don't have to be investigative journalists, but what have I missed when I bypass, you know, why didn't I ask why? That's a point, you know, we come to that place where you have to ask why. And if you don't ask why, you may miss an opportunity to be a solution where there's a huge problem, a human solution, not a white solution, <laughs> you know, not a black, a human solution to another human, an opportunity to be more human to someone else. And so I think it's important to ask, you know, where have I missed the mark? I'll give you this example. We were in, living in New York. My son was a toddler. I was pregnant with my daughter. And we walked the streets in New York all the time with a stroller and, you know, New York City, obviously you see everything. And I remember, I don't know why this day it mattered, but we were walking down the street in Midtown and we passed a number of people that were asleep and homeless and sleep on the street. And something just hit me. I asked my son, my son just kept walking, you know, he's a toddler, he's probably two at the time. And I asked him, I said, what do you see? He said, they're sleeping. And I was like, you know, I noticed he didn't even flinch. He didn't even like kind of stare. Actually, was he was a little bit older, but I noticed it didn't matter to him. It was normal. And it bothered me that it was normal to him to see homelessness. And my heart was aching and his heart was just kind of like, you know, it's because he's being a happy little toddler who probably looking at buildings, but didn't see what I saw in front of me. And at that point I came on my husband. I was like, we have to get him out of New York because I want him to be sensitive to other humans. I want him to see, and I want him to ask why. I want us to have these conversations. I want him to understand differences and understand that he's also the solution to problems. I don't think he's not going to save the entire world, but I don't ever want him to have normalized lack and normalized suffering, normalized pain without even glancing at it and asking why. And so many times we do that as humans, we pass another culture's differences and struggles and we don't even glance to say why. And I think that's the big area of opportunity. That opens the door, right, Masasha, to curiosity to go, oh. oh. I'm obviously here for all of that. Yes. Right? Why leads you to what and how? And it, it takes you on that journey of where your contribution lies in. So I feel that's an important question. But also that point, I don't want to, to let it escape all of us that what you said was that so many times, some people have normalized lack, have normalized suffering. Yeah, and there are many, many cultures in this world where it wouldn't be, right? There are social safety nets in place. And for some reason in our country, we have normalized inequity. We have normalized not looking out for each other as people and expecting there to be enough for people to have the basic human dignity in their life. Absolutely. So we need to ask ourselves as a society that question too, and, and notice that. Absolutely. You know, you think about it and I talk about this a lot in great girlfriend community that even in our lives, we have permissible pain. There's this pains that we're willing to live with and say, it's just the way it is. I've always had it. My mom had it. <laughs> so I've inherited this pain and this is my portion of a struggle. And we allow these things in our life. As long as they're permissible, they'll be there. It's not until you disrupt it that they go away. And it's likewise in society, 
you know, of course, you, we recognize that, oh, there's going to be poor, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be trafficking, but it's not until we disrupt it and we realize that humans are the ones that permit these pains and even perpetuate them on one another. So until we disrupt, until we shine a light and expose them, you know, or call it unhealthy and say that it's wrong, will it change? So I think that's where the human responsibility comes in. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. If people want to learn more and find you, where can they go? Oh my goodness. I'm on Instagram at Sybil underscore A-M-U-T-I, Sybil Amuti. And, you know, I'm at thegreatgirlfriends.com. The podcast is there and I'm, you know, can be connected at LinkedIn at Sybil Clark Amuti. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.